Welcome to Torah Dimecha Parsha with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Orly Kanner, and it is my privilege to be learning Sefer Shemot with you. Our Parsha this week is Parsha Titzaveh. I will begin with a quick overview of the Parsha. Hashem tells Moshe to receive from B'nai Yisrael pure olive oil to feed the everlasting flame of the menorah, which Aharon is to kindle each morning from evening till morning. Moshe is commanded to supervise the fashioning of the priestly garments, the big day kahuna, that are to be worn by the Kohanim while serving in the Mishkan. All Kohanim are to wear the ketonet, a full-length linen tunic, mechnasayim, linen pants, a mitznefet, a linen turban, and avnet, a long sash worn about above the waist. In addition, the Kohen Gadol must wear the ephod, an apron-like garment made of blue, purple, and red dyed wool, linen, and gold thread, the Choshen, a breastplate containing 12 precious stones inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Me'il, a cloak of blue wool with gold bells and decorative pomegranates on its hem, and finally the Tzitz, a golden plate worn on the forehead bearing the inscription, Holy to God, Kodesh Hashem. Titzava also includes Hashem's detailed instructions for the seven-day initiation of Aharon and his four sons into the priesthood. Moshe is also commanded to oversee the construction of the Mizbeach HaZahav, the golden altar, upon which the Ketoret was burned. Parsha Titzava is the one Parsha, since Moshe is born, that his name is not mentioned. In fact, he is referred to three times by God as Veata and you, 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 rather than by the typical Vayitaber Hashem el Moshe and Hashem spoke to Moshe. Our rabbis, in explaining this strange phenomenon, tell us that Moshe's name is omitted because he is omitted. Moshe is excluded from a role in the Avoda of the Mishkan. The fact that Moshe was to be deprived of the role of kahuna is a point that Moshe was made aware of back at the Sneh Bo'er Ba'esh, the burning bush, when Hashem first appeared to him. In fact, the appointment of Aharon as the Kohen Gadol was a direct result, a consequence, of Moshe's refusal to assume the role of representative of God. For seven days, Moshe argued, claiming that he was not a man of words, until after seven days, God finally conceded and agreed to send Aharon in his stead. When Hashem finally yields and agrees to allow Aharon to be the spokesperson, Hashem tells Moshe, Halo Aharon Achicha Halevi, Yadati ki daber yidaberhu. Yes, says Hashem, I know that Aharon at the appointment, says Hashem, as I know that he is comfortable with speech. Rashi explains that due to Moshe's refusal to speak on God's behalf and Aharon's willingness to do so, Aharon, who is destined to be the Levi, will become the Kohen instead of Moshe. Moshe's refusal to accept his mission as representative of God to Paro and the Jewish people was clearly what led Hashem to remove him from priesthood and give it to Aharon. But is this simply a punishment to Moshe for his obstinacy? Or is there a more profound connection between his refusal to represent Hashem and the position of Kohen Gadol? Why is the consequence for Moshe's refusal to speak the loss of the kahuna? Conversely, why is Aharon's comfort with speech a reason for him to merit the kahuna? We utilize language to express, to communicate, to represent our desires, thoughts, hopes, dreams, musings, and feelings. 
Our words are not the actual thoughts or the actual feelings. They are mere reflections, expressions of those thoughts and feelings. Even when we believe to be accurately and honestly articulating those thoughts, there is still a leap, a gap, between the raw feeling and its expression. Just as even a translation is itself a commentary, so too an expression of the thought entails an interpretation, a commentary of it. And that chasm between the real and the expressed leaves room for artifice, for falsehood, for misrepresentation. It therefore stands to reason that Moshe, the consummate Isha Emmet man of truth, could not and would not accept the role of representing Hashem, particularly with his own speech, due to the possibility of misrepresentation, pretension, exaggeration, and falsification inherent in all linguistic communication. His discomfort with speech was a result of the dishonesty that is plausible and probable in speech. The only speech which he willingly agrees to amplify are the direct words of Hashem from Hashem himself. It is for this reason that he is the most trustworthy servant, the Eved Ne'eman, who will fastidiously and meticulously receive and give over Devar Hashem. Moshe Emet Vitorato Emet. Moshe is truth, and the Torah that he brought us is true. It is for that reason that Moshe invalidated himself for the role of Kohen. His initial distrust of symbols and representations precluded him from being the representative of the people to God and of God to the people. Only a person comfortable with symbols, with representations, specifically Aaron, Dafka, because Daber Yedaberhu, because he is comfortable with speech, he is perfectly fit for the Kahuna. After all, every aspect of the priesthood is symbolic. The very essence of sacrifices, karbanot, are symbolic as we sacrifice animals as representing ourselves to atone for our sins. All the beauty and dazzle of the kalim, the vessels and the mishkan, the royal clothing, ceremony, the splendor, majestic music, grandeur and pageantry, all, when used authentically, are meant to stir the people to avodas Hashem, to aspire to connect deeper to Hashem, and bring kavod and tiferet to the relationship between Bnei Yisrael and Hashem. But like Dibor, they are symbols that can so easily be falsified, corrupted, and perverted. We can certainly understand the misgivings and suspicions entailed in speech and all external representations. As we have seen throughout Jewish history, how often these symbols and the institution of the kahuna itself have been vitiated and corrupted. But Aharon Cohen's greatness was in his genuineness and his capacity to vigilantly and impeccably portray in his externals, in symbols, in his dibor and his begadim, the purity of thought and a holiness of spirit that resided within him. It is in this perfect attuning, the congruency of the internal and the external, that the majesty and splendor of the kahuna lies, which is why tahara of thought and body, purity of intention and focus is so critical in every aspect of the avoda in the Mishkan. Amongst the clothing worn by the Kohen Gadol is the Me'il, that is mentioned has attached to its hem hollow bells pa'amonim and dense balls pomegranates the Rimonim. 
whose function is lahashmia to announce the appearance of the Kohen Gadol. But to whom are these bells whose function is to atone for the sins of speech meant to be heard by? There is no one present while the Kohen Gadol performs his avoda. The answer, it seems, is they are meant to be heard by the Kohen Gadol himself. The remoning, the pomegranates, always a sign of male mitzvot karimon, being filled with seeds of mitzvot, are the solid, pure thoughts and spirit that lies within. Whereas the pa'amonim, the bells, are external symbols, meant lahashmia, to vocalize, to sound, to externalize the pure thoughts and emotions. The bells are constant reminders to the Kohen of the challenges, risks, and pitfalls of symbols, of the dangers that disingenuousness, duplicity, and dissonance may, God forbid, enter the space between his thoughts and his outward service. The consonance of the two, however, the fragile and delicate harmony of the internal and the external is where the covered and tiferet, the splendor and grandeur of the Kohen is manifest. With the upcoming holiday of Purim that coincides with our Parsha Tetzava, we are reminded of another two brothers whose relationship with speech is remarkably similar to the contrasting perspectives of Moshe and Aharon. And those brothers are the sons of Rachel, Yosef and Binyamin. Yosef is a medaber who learns the lessons and risks entailed in Dibor early in his life when he tattles on his brothers and flaunts his dreams before them. Transformed, he uses his speech to disseminate the existence of Hashem, first in the house of Potiphar, later in jail, and finally to Paro. Paro, it is not me, but Hashem who will see to Paro's welfare. Yosef, the Medaber, speaks 70 languages, and with his speech, masks, and royal clothing, brings a resolution of unity and peace to the family of Yaakov. Binyamin, on the other hand, has a distrust and a distaste for speech. In our Parsha Tetzave, where the stones of each tribe to be worn on the Choshen are named, the stone for the tribe of Binyamin is mentioned as Yishpe, leading our rabbis to explicate Yishpe. Binyamin is not mute. He has a mouth. He could talk, but he chooses to be silent. Throughout the end of Sefer Breshit, though Binyamin is the linchpin, the sign ashore of the story, spoken about, worried over, fawned over, argued over, cried over, accused and ultimately defended, never does Binyamin utter a word. Never does he divulge the truth of the sale of Yosef, though he alone knew of what his brothers had done and knew of the lies they told their father. And even after being accused of stealing the gavia, the silver goblet, his response is silence. In fact, Binyamin's mantra is probity, humility, and quietude. And this hallmark of Binyamin follows Shevet Binyamin throughout Jewish history. As we see the tribe of Binyamin entangled in the devastating civil war incited by the horrific event of the Pilegesh Begiva. Binyamin is called upon to respond, to hand over those responsible for the heinous rape and murder of the concubine. Binyamin's response, silence. And so too, in Shaul, a descendant of Binyamin, the first king of Israel, is mocked after his anointing by Bliyayel, who challenged his anointing and claimed, Scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They scorned him and they didn't bring him a gift. Shaul's response, 
he remained silent. And so too we see in Shaul's descendants, Esther and Mordechai, how silent Esther was regarding her identity as per the instructions of Mordechai, never verbalizing any thoughts, feelings, or expressing any requests, never divulging or speaking lest she misrepresent her people or betray her integrity and modesty. Lo higida Esther et and again later, en Esther magedet moladatave et ama. In fact, Mordechai has to persuade her to break her silence and speak on behalf of the Jewish people in saying, im hacharesh tacharishi ba'et hazot, revach v'hatzalaya mod la'yehudim makom acher, v'at u'beit avich tovedu. If you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews, but it'll come from somewhere else while you and your father's house will perish. The choice of silence that marks these descendants of Binyamin bespeaks meticulous integrity, unpretentiousness, and modesty that Hashem so loves that he embeds at the onset of the major stages of Jewish history. Hashem ensures that the laying of the foundation of the inchoate houses of God are inculcated with the foundations of authenticity, honesty, and modesty. The Mishkan through Moshe, by Rishon through Shaul, and by Cheney facilitated through the efforts of Mordechai and Esther. In conclusion, whereas Aharon is anointed as Kohen Gadol and his children Kohanim, Aharon is allowed entry into the most sanctified area of the Mishkan, the Kodesh Kedoshim, only once a year on Yom HaKippurim, whereas Moshe has entree into God's most sacred abode at all times, every day. That is, in fact, his meeting place with the Ribona Shalom, where Hashem speaks to him, Panim El Panim. And so too, fascinatingly, it is specifically in the Nachala, the territory of Binyamin, that Hashem chooses to place his Kodesh Kedoshim, a tribute to the unparalleled rectitude, humbleness, and integrity of Moshe and Binyamin, a testimony to their penetrating sounds of silence. Thank you for joining me in the OU Women's Initiative. I look forward to learning with you again next week.